Jesse, last week got me all hot and bothered. What do you have this week? When church friends get closer to each other than to God, someone gets the axe in suburban Texas. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. everyone. Welcome back to Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Thanks, guys, so much for listening. We finally released our first three episodes last week, and it's been incredible to hear your feedback. We have taken every single word to heart, um, and we are just so excited with what we're hearing back from you. So we would love it if you could take a little moment to rate or review or suggest it to your friends so we can find some more love murder lovers out there. And also, Andy has been doing an incredible job with the Instagram. Feel free to head on over to Love Murder Pod, where we post photos each week, highlighting the different characters, uh, scenes, and settings of each story that Jesse tells. So you can really get a visual idea of what this all looks like. Yay! It's so much fun, guys. You should absolutely check it out. It really paints a picture of every story. So I think the more that you can share that with friends and spread the love, the better. It's also at Love Murder Pod on Twitter. And I would love it if you would either tweet or send us an email at lovers at lovemurder.love with any suggestions. If you have some crazy, wild uh, cases that are, you know, caused by something sexual or about love gone wrong, anything that's like up our alley and you really want to hear us tell it, I would love some suggestions from you guys. It would mean the world to me. Okay, let's get down to it. Uh, Jesse, what is going on in suburban Texas? I need to know more about this. Oh my gosh, you are going to get an earful. This is a completely <laughs> wild case. And it's it's really different than the three other cases we've done so far because it is far and away probably the most normal person who does the most extreme thing, which really exemplifies like what we're trying to do here at Love Murder, which is highlighting the ways that romantic entanglements can really take a, a perfectly ordinary person and make them do something so insane and otherworldly and violent. Um, and this story just has everything. And it has far and away the grisliest murder that we've ever covered and might cover for a very long time because it is nasty. All right. Let's do it. Are you ready? <laughs> okay. Buckle up, everybody, because we have got a real story today. Okay, I'm going to set the scene first. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. On Friday the 13th of June, 1980, three neighbors are attempting to break into Alan and Betty Gore's Texas home. It's hot and quiet that night in the small suburb of Wiley, Texas. The men are on edge, unaccustomed to entering someone's home, their private inner sanctum, with that person not present, and also perhaps because the popular slasher flick, Friday the 13th, had only come out a month earlier, casting a creepy pallor on that date. One of the men, a realtor, goes to use his keys to open the front door when it creaks open easily, obviously unlocked. The men slowly enter with only flashlights to guide their way. In the eerie stillness, one man notices a dark, caked substance leaking into the front hallway. 
oh no, something bad is wrong, he exclaims. And they continue to shout for Betty, but the only answer that comes is the horrible, dry, hacking wail of the 11-month-old baby that has been abandoned in her crib. Baby Bethany is dehydrated, her face red from crying, hair tangled and covered in her own filth when they find her. One of the men scoop her up and bring her to his own house across the street. He returns with a gun, now aware that something is deadly wrong in the house. A sick smell permeates the quiet home as the men search the rooms. Finally, one man opens the door to a utility room and screams, Oh my God, don't go any further, to the others. He has found the room washed red and black with blood and in the middle, the ravaged corpse of Betty Gore. In his shock and horror, he believes Betty has perhaps shot her own head off in a suicide attempt, but that's not what happened here. In fact, on this day of Friday the 13th, in the Gore house, which sits 13 houses from the corner, exactly 13 hours before, Betty has been struck with an axe exactly 41 times, caving in her face and mutilating the young mother's body. It will take 13 days for the police to make an arrest, and that person will be the most unlikely of suspects. Welcome to the chilling story of the suburban axe murder of Betty Gore. Okay, her last name is Gore. I know. I know. It really like sets a stage. It happened on Friday the 13th. Her last name is Gore. Like all of these factors together, it reads like a horror movie. Did you write that? Yes. (laughs) I was really setting the scene. But I should mention my sources because I pulled very heavily from Evidence of Love by John Bloom and Jim Atkinson. I also watched a 1990 made-for-TV movie called A Killing in a Small Town. I also read a couple Dallas Morning News articles, one by Jeffrey Weiss in 2010, and another couple by Doug Swanson, uh, published in 2000. So those are my sources. And now we're going to open in happier days when Betty was born in a small town in Kansas. All right. Okay. Let's do this. So Betty was born in 1950 in Norwich, Kansas, to very loving and kind parents, Bob and Bertha Pomeroy. She was a popular and outgoing girl growing up. She was vice president of her class. She played clarinet in the school band. She was on the basketball team and even elected to homecoming court. She kept a meticulous diary listing outings with friends and boys, and there were lots of boys. Though she wasn't, you couldn't say she's like classically beautiful, she had this like great way about her of really like giving in warm personality, beautiful smile. I think that if I had to pick a celebrity, this is kind of really, really cool. I was really going to ask old. if you were going to do this because I think it really helps. <laughs> yes. I always try to do it. Um, the celebrity, and I think this is a lot because of her, her face and her haircut, is Dorothy Hamill, which is – For our younger listeners, you're going to have no idea, but she was a very famous Olympic ice skater in the 70s and 80s. And and I think it's a lot because Betty had that kind of page boy haircut that Dorothy Hamill actually popularized. Yeah. So that's kind of what she looks like, only Dorothy obviously as an ice skater was pretty petite and thin. And well, Betty wasn't heavy or overweight. She was just like, she was like a farm girl, man. She was like good Midwestern stock. So she was like taller and and stockier. 
if you can get that picture. And she's a brunette and she has like pretty brown eyes, okay? I was going to say, are you going to tell me more about all the boys or? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, it was really cute actually. She had this like diary and in it she wrote about like the boys that she went out with and who wanted to take her driving and if she was allowed to go on car dates. And she just seemed really popular and kind and she wanted to go out into the greater world and get out of her small town. And she was always excited and dreamed of being a teacher. So in the fall of 1968, she entered Southwestern College in Winfield, Kansas on a scholarship, which is where she met her future husband, Alan Gore, which took me a little while to get past. If you, you know, give him a nickname, his nickname would be Al Gore. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. Which also made Googling really difficult too. I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So Alan was a senior. We're going to exclusively call him Alan for exactly that reason. Yeah. Um, Alan was a senior when Betty was a freshman, and they connected when he was her teaching assistant for her first-year math class. Yeah, a little hot for teacher action. (laughs) Um, Betty and Alan had a lot in common in some ways, but they were also pretty different. They both grew up in farming families in Kansas, only three counties away from each other. But while Betty was outgoing and popular, Alan was more reserved and standoffish. When Betty brought Alan home to visit, her friends and family seemed a little surprised that Alan was the guy she wanted to settle down with. He was small, with horn-rimmed glasses, and already receding hairline. (laughs) His shyness could kind of be misconstrued as arrogance. And as Betty's dad, Bob, commented to her mother, for someone who had grown up on a farm, he certainly didn't seem like a farm boy. He was kind of more intellectual and not so rugged. Um, nevertheless, the two were married in January of 1970, and I think that a big draw for the two of them was that they had the same value set um, in a shared background, and Betty really worshipped Alan. Um, she had this idea of what marriage should be and how you should submit to your husband and how he should kind of be like your be-all, end-all, and I don't think Alan had ever gotten that type of attention before in his entire life. So it probably was very flattering to him, and she really respected his intelligence and drive, and he was actually very fond of her ambition to be a teacher because I think even back then, you know, we're talking about being raised in like the 50s and 60s, there probably wasn't a ton of very, very ambitious women who were like immediately like, I want to have a career and I want to have it even after I have kids, you know? Yeah. And it makes sense why she would be attracted to him in that same field. He's her TA and it it totally makes sense. Yeah. He already has like a sense of authority Mm -hmm. and intelligence. And I think it's comforting to have somebody who has the same background as you, but wants to go the same way. It's like you're on the same trajectory. So their early marriage, you know, has some ups and downs. Uh, Right before their wedding, Betty transferred to Kansas State so that Alan could begin graduate studies there in computer analysis, which is really like the burgeoning edge of technology that he was like already in computer studies um, in 1970. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, at the beginning, they obviously like he she was a college student. He's a graduate student. So there's money issues there. They're both trying to get used to living together and they're establishing themselves. And this is where a pattern emerges of Betty having experienced some mysterious illnesses that happen in times of stress and anxiety. So the first time that 
this happens where she seems to be getting these like psychosomatic health issues um, was when Alan had finished graduate school and he was waiting on a job offer that Betty was so scared was never going to come because they were in debt. They absolutely needed money. Um, And at that time, she was diagnosed with three different things from three different doctors. So she was diagnosed, yeah, with spastic stomach, which is like trouble digesting her food appendicitis, which they saw another opinion and didn't operate. So it clearly wasn't appendicitis and also an ulcer. But the weird thing is, yeah, like everyone said that something different. Seems all stress triggered though. Exactly. So So as soon as Alan got the job, all of a sudden all the health issues are gone. Um. So everything cleared up as soon as Alan received the job offer. And the job offer was from White Sands Missile Range in New Mexico. So he's working for the military here. Oh, wow. After – yeah, it's a very, like, high-clearance job, I think. After they moved to New Mexico, Alan had to leave on a six-week business trip. And this devastated Betty. And I can understand that. They're still fairly newlyweds at this point, And six weeks is a really long time. Yeah. So it's long, but it's like also doable, I feel like, if it you have to do it for work. And so she got really whiny and depressed and, you know, she kind of went beyond what is a normal feeling, which like is totally normal to be like, hey, I'm sad. I'm upset you're gone, you know? Yeah, but it's also his job. It's also his job. You know? And she was like crying every time he called. Like he would call to like be like, hi, I was thinking of you. I love you, honey. And she'd be like crying from the beginning to the end of the Did conversation. Did she have any anxiety or depression issues in high school? I – so the when she was in high school was like in the 60s. Yeah. Like so she was born in 1950. So she was a teenager like from 1962 to like, you know, um, 1970 or whatever. And um, I don't think that people were diagnosing it then. And I think she was fairly sheltered with her parents and with her home life. And I, I think there was only like 400 people in her whole town. So I, I think that maybe she was very safe in that community. And now she doesn't have her family. She's away from Kansas. She doesn't have her friends. She had just moved to New Mexico when he had to go on this trip. So I'm sure that there's some anxiety and depression that's gone undiagnosed, but also there's a lot of triggers right now. Yeah, she's not in Kansas anymore. (laughs) She's literally not in Kansas anymore. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so she is – really like not having a good time. And she's saying that long separations aren't normal or proper or healthy in marriages. And then she did something completely uncharacteristic. She had a one-night stand with another undergraduate student, which is just not typical of Betty. Was it while he was gone? While he was gone. Yeah. So two days after Alan returned, she confessed tearfully and he was obviously hurt, but he decided to forgive her. And so he would later tell the authors, um, Jim and John of the Evidence of Love book, that the act seemed less of an act of desperation and more of a calculated attempt to control his behavior. But in any case, it never happened again. So he kind of felt like later – that she did it because she was like, well, look what happens when you leave me. Yeah, that's kind – It's, I mean, that's like holding something over your partner's head for doing their job and providing for you. Yeah. It's, it's pretty manipulative. So, 
It is. So I think, and I don't even know if she would have, I think she was in whatever mental hole she was in that she didn't even realize that because she doesn't seem later like a manipulative person. It just seems like she's really in her own head about a lot of things and justifies a lot of behaviors, you know? Yeah. So um, after Betty graduated from college, Alan scored a new job in Richardson, Texas, which is a bedroom suburb of Dallas. And in the early to mid-70s, this area was known as the Silicon Prairie. Oh, my God. Um, which is <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's an outpost known for technology development um, like Palo Alto and suburban Boston. So here they had their firstborn, a little girl named Elisa. But instead of joy, Betty had a really bad case of PPD. Oh, no. So she's having postpartum. And Alan is not helping this because – you know, he's going on three to four day business trips, which again, like he can't really help. No. Yeah. Um, but he also gets extra involved with the church, um, which he maybe could not have done because both activities take him away from Betty and their infant daughter. So like he's volunteering to be like an elder in the church and he is doing nighttime activities and extra work on Saturdays and Sundays when he could have been at home with his family. Were they involved with the church together prior to him taking on these extra yes. hours. Okay, got it. Yep. So they were they were both like parishioners. They were both regular church goers, but he seemed around the time that they settled in Richardson to get even more involved. Yeah. I mean, it's um, like if a guy's going to do recreational things though, going to church isn't the worst. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's not like going to the bar. He's not gambling. <laughs> yeah, it could be worse. <laughs> yeah. Um, so basically at this point, her doctors put her on a cocktail of Valium, estrogen, and painkillers. Oh my God. I know. I guess that's what the treatment for postpartum depression was back that then. That combo sounds insane. That sounds like it's going to make your problems worse, not better. Oh. So, you know, those things didn't even help, unfortunately. For the next year, Betty would go to the doctor repeatedly, sometimes two to three times a month. And she had various complaints, including – I'm going to read this from Evidence of Love. Okay. Because I can't even I can't even remember everything because it's so insane, including nervous stomach, sinus troubles, sore throat, swollen glands, tiredness, fear of pregnancy in parentheses unfounded, neck soreness, chest soreness, oh. a wart surgically removed. Oh, I'm not even halfway done. Back spasms for which she started taking tranquilizers. She kind of sounds like a hypochondriac though, as well. Yeah, vaginal itching. I'm like, I love that they threw that one in. That just seems like we could have left the vaginal itching out. That, yeah. <laughs> Laryngitis, breast soreness, fever, earache, sinus problems, and tingling in her left arm. Oh, God. So at first, the doctor was like prescribing things and understanding. And as time went on, his notes would just like include the phrase like anxiety induced and like psychosomatic. Okay. So at least they were in tune to that. Yeah. Like after all of those things, he was like, this is definitely some somewhat stress induced. So she also was teaching at this point, but she was having a hard time teaching because um, I she imagine. was- <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of issues. She was like substitute teaching and then she didn't get the job she wanted. Like usually substitute teachers would do the substitute teaching for a while and they were offered a classroom of their own when one became available, but she was passed over and it seemed like she had a hard time getting along with some of the other teachers. So she's going through a lot of stress and then Alan has to 
go to Zurich for six weeks to install a complicated software system there. And she really hit a real low. So he and actually invited her to come out one of the weeks. Like she left um, the baby with her parents in Kansas and flew to Zurich to be with him. And they both talked about it being the absolute best week of their marriage. Aww. They like did all this fun stuff together. They drank wine every night and they like stayed in this like one hotel room that was really cold, but they had to like huddle up together and it was very romantic. So they had a great time. But when she got back, I think the high of having been on that trip made the low of coming home without him so much worse. Yep. Yeah. That totally makes so sense. So she like really lost it at this point and she was hysterical and she was like hysterical every time she was talking to him. But she also called his boss and begged his boss to let him come home, which is serious no-no. That's so inappropriate. It's so inappropriate. Did he like, find out about it? Yeah, of course he did because she also told him and he was like, oh, shit. But he actually handled it pretty well, it sounds like. He basically decided that his wife had a serious issue and he needed to come home. And then he talked to his boss about transferring to a different team that worked primarily in Dallas. Oh, man. So he's really taken all steps necessary to support her. Yeah. Like he he – even um, they decided to move so that she could be closer to the school she was working at. Like he really like went out of his way to take a lot of the stressors and anxiety, you know, stuff that was going on in her life out of it. So at this point, they settled in in their new home. Uh, they looked at the move as a fresh start for their marriage. And they joined a new church 10 miles up the road, which is where they meet Candy and Pat Montgomery. Montgomery. Oh, my God. That was and they become – Candy and Pat Montgomery and become good couple friends. So before we get to how the four of them all ended up meeting and hanging out, let me tell you a little bit about them. So Candy was an army brat who grew up all around the world on different bases. She was in France, Virginia, El Paso, West Germany, Washington, D.C. So cool. And then, yeah, so she was like all over the place. And then when she was 20, she ended up back in El Paso in 1970 working as a secretary in a furniture factory, and that's when she met Pat. So she worked with his mother, who set them up on a blind date, and they did not have an auspicious start. Candy, who is actually petite and blonde and pretty cute, um, and also described as impish and fun-loving by those who knew her, was described as overweight and with a double chin by Pat after their first meeting. What? And she – yeah, so I don't know where he got that. She must have just been bloated that day. And um, and then she described him as the dullest date she's ever had. Stop. So, yeah, somehow these people, after what sounds like the worst first date in history, improbably end up on a second date. And that's most likely because Pat lived in Dallas, but he was from El Paso. So he was home visiting his parents when his mom set him up on this date. And I guess he said that most of his friends had moved on from El Paso. So he was basically just home and bored. And so he asked Candy on a second date and she was like, I guess so. I don't know why. It doesn't sound like they got along, but they did. And um, when he went home to Dallas, where he was a promising electrical engineer at Texas Instruments, um, he sent her a dozen roses and a note. And I guess Candy was charmed. Texas so she was Instruments, like, those good old boob calculators. Oh, my God. Yes. Do you remember how expensive those damn yeah, things were? Yeah, they were, were like over $100 and we were in like third grade. 
I know it was so much. And all That's kids did was write thought. boobs and butt on them. And hell, you could write hell, hell too. Yep. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> um Okay, so yeah, so basically Candy really likes that he sent her flowers, so she calls him at Texas Instruments, and it kicks off a very romantic long-distance relationship. So they start writing each other letters and writing cards and like doing the thing when you like first are into somebody and you like talk on the phone for like eight hours, like all night long, you know? sleep on the phone. Exactly. It's (laughs) like you hang up. No, you hang up. No, no, let's just – okay, let's just listen to each other sleep. (laughs) I love listening to you breathe. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Guys, we're old married ladies now. We, like, are laughing about this, but it's actually very sweet. It is, yeah. Yes. (laughs) We were both there sometimes. I wonder who he told – I wonder who he told that she was fat and – had a double chin to. I know. So it was in evidence of love. So did he, like – tell the authors like well when I first met her I thought this because that's fat and had a double chin like (laughs) that's what I I read it in that book so I don't know if he's like guy to guy she was a real cow when I met her but hey everything turned out okay it's so much easier to pass judgment on someone's personality on the first date but like to be that mistaken about how someone looks is so strange to me (laughs) yeah and I've seen you guys will see pictures too we're going to um put them up on Instagram Um, she looks like, and I, I might have been very swayed by the hairstyles, but she looks like <laughs> Kitty from that 70s show. <laughs> okay. She's got like glasses. And, but like you can imagine Kitty. Remember how tiny she was? She's like a petite little woman. Yeah. And Kitty yeah. and Candy definitely go hand in hand. Exactly. There's the Kitty Candy thing too. But I, we're going to – I'm even going to put – let's put up K- Kitty from the 70s show up on the Instagram too so you guys can see if I'm right. Cool. Okay. So – they end up deciding to marry within two months. Sounds like someone else I know. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I did. I From meeting my husband to getting married was only five months. So I can kind of get this. I can rock with this. Um, Candy said she married him because she thought Pat had great earning potential, a good education, and a nice family. So by 1977, they have two kids, a girl named Jenny and a boy named Ian. And they had settled down in the country house of Candy's dreams in a subdivision called Montecito, about 25 to 30 miles outside of Dallas. So life looks pretty perfect for both couples right now, don't you think? I think so, yeah. I mean, minus Betty's severe anxiety attacks. (laughs) Yeah. Uh. Minus some of Betty's health issues. But, you know, Alan's doing a great job of addressing them and, you know, hopefully they're having – So maybe she'll – She does. Yeah. Candy especially had the perfect life or the life that she had dreamed of. She has her dream house. She has her two kids, a boy and a girl. And Pat was making $70,000 a year, which in 1977 money is nearly $300,000. That's real good. That's real good. So she was – set up. But like a lot of people who marry when they're young and inexperienced, she was bored and feeling like she missed out on her youth. Oh, man. So at first, she channels a lot of this ill ease into volunteering at the church, and she strikes up a deep friendship with the female minister, Jackie Ponder. And the Gores and the Montgomerys first bonded as choir couples, and they quickly had multiple playdates and get-togethers because their two little girls, Elisa and Jenny, were around the same age and became best friends. So yeah, the two couples also participated in the church volleyball league. So they are socializing a ton together. 
Um, eventually, Candy is not as satisfied with her volunteer work. She'd also been like taking a creative writing class. But Pat was just he was very technical. He's very science minded and mathematically minded. And he didn't really like understand what why she was taking a class. And he didn't understand what she was trying to achieve with this creative writing class. And so she would like try to talk about short stories or read her work to him. And he was just like, that's good for you. I'm glad you're liking it. I just I don't care, basically. So I think that everything that she was trying to do just really wasn't giving her any payback. She had no satisfaction in her life. So she eventually decides what she needed to have, what she needs to have here is an affair. Oh, I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) Well, it wouldn't be (sighs) love murder without somebody doing something dumb for sex or love. (laughs) Oh, man. I feel like she just is in this like never-ending quest though to – it's weird because it's like he doesn't need to like your creative writing stories. Yeah. Like, but you I think just need to like it. It's not like Pat's fault, obviously. She needs to do some work on herself. And having an affair is not the, the right idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, like, what she tells her friends is that she wants sex without emotional commitment, sex on her terms. She wants crazy fireworks sex, the kind where the earth moves and she totally loses control. And this is a kind of sex that she is. Never had with her I was just going to say. And and, and maybe never had in her life. I don't think she's ever had it. I think she was a fairly good girl in quotations. Um, So I don't know if she had had sexual partners before. She was only 20 when she got married, you know? Dude, that's way too young. Mm Mm-hmm. So she even confided in the minister about this desire. So Jackie, who's the minister, attempts to dissuade her from the idea and she sets her up with another woman from the church who had actually cheated on her husband and regretted it. And she tried to get this woman who had gone through an affair to be like, don't do it. You don't want to do this. You'll regret it. And afterwards, the the other parishioner calls Jackie, the minister, and is like, there's nothing I can tell her. She's already made up her mind about it. So like, Crazy that it was that premeditated. Oh my gosh, like she decided she wanted to have an affair before she decided who she wanted to have the affair yeah, with. Yeah, this seems backwards. Like I feel like usually you meet someone and there's a spark and you're like, oh. Yeah, like, oh, I would never cheat on my husband but you. Yeah. Mm, you know? <laughs> She's like, give me anyone. Anyone. Oh, and she does because eventually who she decides to have the affair with is Alan Gore. No. <laughs> Yes, wait. So this is from Evidence of Love. It's so not Aren't sexy. They friends, it's so unbelievable. Yes, they're friends. Listen to this. Candy Montgomery would always be able to remember the precise moment when she decided she would go to bed with Alan Gore. It happened on the church volleyball court. Candy and Alan <laughs> both tried to make a play on the same ball and collided. It was a harmless bump, really, and went unnoticed by everyone else on the court. But for Candy, it brought a revelation. Alan Gore smelled sexy. When she told her friend Sherry Kleckler, also these names, Sherry Kleckler. Alan Gore smelled sexy? Yeah, that's a sentence you didn't think you'd say tonight, huh? Ever. (laughs) Ever. Candy said it was odd but true. Before the bump, she hadn't been attracted to Alan at all, but the masculine smell changed her mind. Then again, it wasn't entirely that, since she had been talking abstractly about having an affair for several weeks. (laughs) She had told Sherry she wanted a sexual escapade, and she'd even broached the subject with Jackie Ponder, the minister. 
Candy wanted something to shake up her very boring life with Pat. She was very explicit about the kind of affair she wanted. She was interested in transcendent sex. <laughs> okay, so Alan is paunchy with a receding hairline, and he's no one's like obvious first choice for affair. And I think it's time for another love murder PSA. <laughs> Don't. Don't have affairs. And if you do have affairs, don't do it with the married couple friend, father of your child's best friend, who you go to church with. Party foul for sure. Party foul for sure. Love murder does not approve. We do not. So at this point, Betty, you know, was still having various health issues. So she eventually like drops out of participating in volleyball and can't. Yeah, forgot about Betty. Yeah, so poor Betty is on the sidelines here, literally. (laughs) Pat has stopped participating in volleyball as well and choir. So now Alan and Candy are doing all of these activities without their spouses. So they had a lot of time to flirt, and apparently Alan would like joke around with Candy and make funny faces at her while she was singing, like trying to make her laugh. So Candy decided that there was definitely interest on his side as well. Um, and she had decided he was going to be the target. And so she's 28 and she's pushing 29. Can you believe how young no. these people are? It's it's insane. And they already have like two kids that are like in kindergarten. And their dream nuts. home and a husband pulling in 300K a year. I mean. Exactly. Of course oh she's God. bored. <laughs> it was a different time. That is for sure. <laughs> oh, my God. Um. So, yeah. So she – is deciding that she does like she's tired of being sexually frustrated and like as her birthday approaches she's like i it's now or never i have to go for it and so after choir practice one night candy leans into his car and says like alan i want to talk to you sometime about something that's been bothering me so he says like well how about right now hop in and invites her into the car and she slides into the seat and says i've been thinking about you a lot and it's really bothering me and i don't know whether i want you to do anything about it or not So Alan is completely confused. Like, I'm sure that he got that she was flirting with him, but I think he did not think that it was going to go in that direction. So he says nothing. And Candy goes on, I'm very attracted to you and I'm tired of thinking about it. So I just wanted to tell you. And then she just gets out of the car and goes away. Can you imagine Kitty from that 70s show doing that? (laughs) (laughs) Just that that really high-pitched voice. I'm really hot and bothered by you and I can't stop thinking about you. (laughs) That's perfect. Yes, exactly. Let's just all picture that. So Alan was totally gobsmacked. Um, Obviously, his home life hasn't been great. You know, Betty has a lot of issues. And there had even been this like failed foster situation. Like she had fostered a little boy and they really didn't get along and they fought all the time. And she treated the little foster kid really poorly. And he had like been through a lot. So he was, you know, he talked back a lot and she just like could not handle it. And so eventually they had to like replace the kid. So it was just devastating. So he's been through this with Betty. She's She's like in a terrible mood after this. And so she decides the best way to fix herself and her marriage is to have another kid. Oh, no. Yeah. So this is what's happening in Alan's home life. So I know. And it's like that affair is not going to make any of this better either. No. But you can kind of see 
where his mind is because basically at home now, Betty had gone from like for months and months not wanting any sex and not being interested in him at all to all of a sudden she wants to have a baby now. So like during her fertile window, she's like demanding like sex on demand in certain positions and being like, why can you just – perform, you know? And so it's really frustrating him and he's starting to feel like kind of used and resentful. Like for months she didn't want any sex and now he's supposed to just perform on demand. Yeah. And there's like no connection when you're just told to perform. Exactly. So I think that all of this happening in his home life when there's like an attractive woman who's like, I'm just really attracted to you for like no other reason than just what seems like your sexual appeal, that this could be appealing. Plus Candy has a very like open, happy-go-lucky, optimistic, upbeat personality, you know? So he could be attracted to that as well. Very alluring. Yes, exactly. So he's still trying to do the right thing. He knows practically that it's obviously not a good idea to have an affair with her. So a week after Candy's confession, they get a chance again to speak alone after a church volleyball game. Oh, God. And – Alan tells her all the reasons why they shouldn't do it. Betty had actually just gotten pregnant at this point, like very newly. She had cheated on him once, like we said, in New Mexico, and it really hurt him and he didn't want to do that to her. And oh. there was just like any he, he's like all of these reasons why we should rational do reasons. <laughs> yes, exactly. And he's doing the right thing. So Candy's like, I totally understand. It's up to you. I still am attracted to you. And I don't want to break up your marriage and I don't want to break up mine, but I want to sleep with you. So she's like, I'm just laying it out there. I really want to have sex with you and it doesn't have to affect anything. Um, But if you don't want to, I'm never going to bring it up again. She's like, I promise you I'll never bring it up again. So she like gets out of his car and walks away. And she's a little embarrassed that she like put it all out there and she's embarrassed that like he turned her down. But she's like, whatever, I left it all in the field, you know? So Alan's really struggling now because I think he's – very tempted. And his marriage with Betty obviously isn't great. So he suggests a program called Marriage Encounter, which is a church-sanctioned marriage like communication and counseling program. And he he a couple couples in their church had done it and it seemed to be very helpful for them. And it's like a weekend where you go and you like talk about all your issues and you journal together and you like cry together and you talk. Couples retreat situation. Exactly. Betty was pregnant and she was tired. She was full-time teaching at this point and she was also taking a graduate course at night. Oh, wow. So she was like, this is a lot. And and of course, they also had a little daughter. Yeah. They had Elisa still. So she's like, this looks like just another thing I have to do. Are you saying our marriage is in trouble? And he didn't know how to say yes to her. He was just like, uh, no, everything's fine. But in reality, he was trying to ward off an affair, you know? Yeah. yeah. So on Candy Montgomery's 29th birthday, she gets a surprise gift in a phone call from Alan Gore asking her to lunch and saying he wanted to discuss what they talked about before. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they meet on November 16th, 1978 at an auto repair shop a few miles north of Candy's house because Alan was getting something fixed. They were going to meet there and then go to a tea house for lunch. Um, And Alan breaks the ice by giving her a birthday card that reads, for the last of the red hot lovers. And inside, if you can guess, was a small bag of red hot candies. <laughs> so, so for the last of the red hot lovers. And then there's like a little. I just w- really want to bang. Like, when, <laughs> what, what is with the music card and the little cinnamon candies? 
So I, I wrote down shop. at the auto body shop. <laughs> so thus begins the lamest sexual affair of all time. Oh my God. So they go to the tea house to discuss the ground rules of the affair, that they would not fall in love, that there'd be no emotional involvement. Obviously, their spouses could never find out. And if either of them wanted to end it at any point, they could do it with no hard feelings. But like they don't just go do it then. They keep talking about it. They end up talking about this affair for a month and a half before they do anything. At one point, she invites him over to her house when her husband's at work, obviously. And she has like a why and why not. It's like they literally are like debating if they're going to have this affair or not. Oh my God. With like nothing romantic, no kisses, no, no little grab ass, nothing. They're just literally debating this like philosophically, like if they're going to have this affair. Which seems and- so contrary to what she wants. Like she wants this crazy sex and they're doing a pros and cons spreadsheet. Yeah. And she's picking a guy who's a lot like her husband. He's working at, you know, like the her husband works at Texas Instruments and this guy's like an engineer as well. They you know, they both have goers and it, Yeah. It's just go to a motorcycle bar. <laughs> yeah, get yourself a, a rough rider. Get yourself some something different. Yeah. Oh. So um, then they work out the practicalities. They would meet only on weekdays when their spouses at work. They would split all of the costs equally. Wow. <laughs> like if they paid for a hotel, they would they would like split the money. Um, What's that called? Would, going Dutch? Yeah, they would go Dutch. <laughs> Candy would secure the hotel and pack a lunch to – allow them to use the full extent of Alan's two-hour lunch break. So, like, they were like, "Mm, it would make sense if you, like, got the hotel and brought a lunch so that we could have maximum banging time. Oh, my God. I'm, like, bored for them. I know. And they would meet on Tuesday or Thursday every two weeks when Candy's youngest was in preschool. So after all of this meticulous planning, they finally set a date for December 12th, 1978 and if you thought you were bored already <laughs> she makes a lunch of roast chicken and salad oh and some God. white wine at least they got some white wine in there and he, he she dresses in a pink nightgown so she has like the lunch ready in a pink nightgown when he walk, walks into the continental inn on oh an expressway my- yes and so apparently, as soon as he walks in, she's like, I've made lunch. And then they sit on either of the side of the bed and they make small talk. And then she says, I feel like what we're eating, which I don't even know what that means. Does she feel like chicken? Roasted chicken? <laughs> I don't know. So they finished the dessert and then they busied themselves with putting aside the paper plates and containers. What's as the dessert? Neither- <laughs> I don't know. They didn't say. It's like, what should we make it? We should Twinkies. It's like, it's like lime green jello. <laughs> um, pudding. Pudding, yeah. When there was nothing left to do, Candy sat quietly by the chair on the window. There was a moment of strained silence. Well, said Alan, are you just going to sit there? Candy smiled. Yes. Alan walked around the bed and gently touched her on the shoulder. Oh my God. All of her nervousness dissolved. Wait, listen to this t- description of the affair. So this is also from Evidence of Love. The sex was gentle and conventional and satisfying. It was also very brief. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. 
Candy was amazed at first by Alan's naivete as a lover. When she stuck her tongue into his mouth, it was apparent that he had never had a French kiss before. The good news was that he was a quick learner. For his part, Alan was positively transported. Candy was so responsive and energetic. She moved so much that Alan found it more exciting than any sexual experience he had ever had. It was good for him because it seemed good for her. He couldn't keep going very long, but he wouldn't forget the feeling for several days afterwards where did they get these facts so the i think they got these from candy and alan gore themselves so these authors this book is incredible by the way too it was an edgar award finalist um they wrote this like three years after the murder and they got basically every single person involved in the the story um gave them interviews so except they got really well, except for Betty, yeah. Which we'll get into later when we talk about the murder and the story that comes out about the murder, how Betty's voice is lost in all of this, you know? It always is so hard. I mean, even in um, our second episode with yes, Adrian, with Adrian mm-hmm. not having her narrative at all for any part of the trial, the story, it's just so hard to digest and it just makes it that much more. It's so lopsided too. And when you find out what happens to all of these people later, like literally Alan and Betty's family and the Montgomery's, you still you can still see that the the narrative might have been lopsided. Even in like what Alan is telling people about his wife later, it might have been lopsided. So we've heard so much about Betty's issues that like we don't know who's telling them, you know? Yeah, so. it's so hard. Did the the some of the notes came from the doctors though, right? Yes, exactly. Some of the notes came from the doctor. So, I mean, these were all in her files. So these are real things that she thought she was going through or at least went to the doctor for. Yeah. Um, so they start this affair. And after two months of mediocre sex, followed by lunches of things like – this was really from the book – taco salad, lasagna, or ham and cheese casserole. Oh, gross. I can't imagine having wild sex after I ate ham and cheese casserole. Well, I guess it's not wild. It's mediocre. So It is, it is mediocre. <laughs> I wish there was so- like another word for affair that was this relationship. Because affair yeah. just seems not – it's too sexy. So this is probably the most gruesome murder we're ever going to cover and the least sexy sex. I like it. I <laughs> yeah. like the juxtaposition. Yes. Um, so Candy's starting to have reservations at this point. She's realizing, number one, the sex is not this like fireworks transcendent sex that she wants. And it doesn't seem like it's going to be. But also, number two, paradoxically, she's also kind of developing feelings for Alan. So they're like spending – obviously, he doesn't last very long. So they're spending a lot of that time talking. And she's getting to know him and she's really enjoying him as a friend. I don't know why they're just not buckling up for round two. You know, I know. Well, I think I think Alan has some performance issues that we'll get into in a little bit. So, Alan at this point doesn't want anything things to end. Like he's really enjoying this. He's having the best sex of his life, and he's good at compartmentalizing. He's like, this is not my marriage. This is a t- totally separate thing. That's just for me. And um, you know, he doesn't think he's gonna fall in love with Candy. And I think it's also very ego feeding for him for sure. because. They're like even splitting the bills. Like Candy's not getting anything out of this except for sex, which means that she wants to have sex so badly with him that she'll 
pay money and she'll go places and she'll sneak around and she'll lie to her husband. And it's just for his dick, basically. Yeah. And there's probably, I mean, you know, he did forgive his wife for cheating, but you never really Mm -hmm. forget. So exactly. You're exactly right. I think there's a little bit of a payback thing going on. Um, so in case we have forgotten, Betty is pregnant throughout this. Horrible. So he is cheating on his pregnant wife and the affair continues and the deception gets to an all-time high in June when Candy throws a surprise baby shower oh, for Betty. Oh, no. Yeah. Also, the the surprise baby shower sounded awful. It was at the church and it was supposed to be like, the reason it was a surprise was it was supposed to be like just a sit down Chinese dinner at the church with some church couples. And then they like brought out presents and balloons and cake and they were like, surprise. Oh God. I know. Poor Betty can't catch a break. That sounds terrible. Poor thing though. I mean, like her husband's running around on her and they and then love- the mistress set like does the party the shower though like that's not yeah exactly so after the baby is born they name it's a little girl they name Bethany the affair resumes but months later an incident rocks Alan and Betty and what happens is that on one of the days that he's having an affair with Candy that night, Betty, for the first time in months, wants to have sex with Alan. So she starts like being like, tonight's the night and cuddling up, kissing him and trying to seduce him. And he cannot get an erection. No. Because um, he feels horrible. He's, well, I think it was – he said it was because he had gone that afternoon. So he has some – I know. I know. I was like, Andy's <laughs> going to be like, what? He can only go once a day? What is with this guy? Um, yeah, so he says that he can't get it up because he was with Candy earlier in the day. And of course, Betty takes this extremely personally. She's like, it's because I haven't lost the baby weight. It's because you hate me. You don't love me. Like, you're not attracted to me. And and she gets like really depressed and miserable. And it makes Alan feel extraordinarily guilty. Of course. Yeah. And so he's like, but also, I really dude, have just to. Just get a hard on. Yeah. Just, just think about something else. Yeah. Get out of your mind. Man. Buckle up the ride your wife <laughs> for a couple minutes. Just, it's only going to be a couple minutes of your time. We know how you roll, Alan. So they decide to finally go to the marriage encounter program Good. that he brought up so, many, so long ago. So now they're going to go in October of 1979 and they go to this hotel and they start working through the guided exercises and they're writing in journals and they're sharing feelings with each other in a way that they haven't for years. And some of the things that the marriage encounter people are asking them are, to write down are things like, what do I like best about you? How do I feel about that? What do I like best about myself? How do you feel about that? What do I like best about us? How do we feel about that? Like it's supposed to just make you examine your relationship and how you communicate and like bring out maybe like you're not used to saying nice things about the couple and you say nice things about each other or you, you know, reveal some vulnerabilities. And it's supposed to be like this 100% radical honesty experience, but obviously Alan is hiding this big secret, oh, which he so feels terrible because about. he wanted to go before the affair started. It's just horrible timing. Yeah, and and they're doing really, really well at communicating. They both seem really into this marriage encounter, but on the last day, they have to write a final letter to the other person about their entire experience and how they want to be going forward. And the the people who wrote the book got her last letter, and it's actually really sad. 
So I'm going to read it to you now. Here I sit crying because I am so happy and so proud to be your wife. I've known that all along, but when you really stop to think about it, we are so lucky to have each other. Let's don't let anything come between us. We've been through so much. All of it we can look back at as good, and then in parentheses, except for the times you were gone for a very long time. Those times I'll never see as good. They were very difficult, and when I think of your being gone more, I remember those times with dread. The aloneness, the coldness of a house that wasn't really a home without you there. The fear for your safety because you were where I was not and I couldn't make sure you were okay. I never really felt fear for my safety at home alone, but the feeling of being alone is the worst possible one to have. It's like you're in a dark tunnel and you've got a long ways to go to the light. The light isn't there till you're home again, safe and sound. And sometimes the times you were gone made that tunnel very long. I know. So she, I think she had like a almost pathological fear of being alone. Yeah. And it seems like she had a little bit of like a controlling issue too if she didn't like that he was gone because she couldn't protect him. I mean, that's just, yes, that's life. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a fear. She has a big fear of losing him. Oh. So Alan feels like shit and he should. Yeah. And he goes back to Candy and he's like, I can't do this anymore. And she at this point doesn't really want the affair to end, but you know, they made the deal that they were both going to be out and with no, you know, crying or whatever issues. And so she agrees that they're going to end the affair. And apparently they're both like sad about it, but Helen's really relieved actually to be like back on the straight and narrow and recommitting himself to Betty. I guess Candy, it was kind of hard for her because she also liked the ego boost. So she started going out, like getting a babysitter at night that her like husband's not around and going out with her best friend to this kind of like singles bar and like flirting with guys. I feel like that's what she should have done in the first place. Me too. I completely agree. And because like she doesn't even end up like hooking up with any of these guys. She just gets that outlet of like flirting with guys and having guys like buy her a drink and stuff, you know? But she does actually begin another affair with a man named Richard who she meets at a neighbor's Halloween party. She realizes like fairly quickly that it was a bad idea because unlike Alan, who's very easygoing and like very much a friend of hers, Mm -hmm. Richard is like way more passionate and he's way more sexually experienced. So she's kind of having that wild sex she wanted, but he's like super intense about her. He's also married with kids, but he wants to see her every Tuesday and Thursday, like where basically Alan saw her every two weeks. This guy wants to see her twice a week. And then eventually he's like, wouldn't it be great if we left our spouses and we were together? And she's like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is not what I wanted. But did she create those boundaries at the beginning with him like she did with Alan? She tried to set the same guide rules and he heard – like when she said, I'm free on Tuesdays and Thursdays so we can get together like every other Tuesday or Thursday. He's like, well, why not both Tuesdays and Thursdays like every week? Why not? And she was like, oh, um – I don't know. It's just not – like she didn't know what to say. She wasn't like going to be like – it wasn't like my previous affair, you know? Um, so I don't know how she set the guidelines, but she was kind of turned off finally and just ends it with him fairly soon after they began. And she finally decides maybe an affair isn't what she needs and maybe she should work on herself and her own peace and self-love, which is really good. So she's kind of 
like late to the party, but we're happy you got here, Candy. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And so after that, she actually wants to get her marriage back on track. So she talks to Alan about marriage encounter and she's like, do you think this is something that would benefit me and Pat? And he's like, I don't know. It's not supposed to, it's not supposed to be like marriage counseling. It's supposed to be for like relationships that are pretty good already. And you're like working on communication and getting them better. And everything that Candy had said about Pat was like really negative. So he wasn't sure like what headspace she was in. But she's like, ah, screw it. I'm going to do it anyway. So they go and they have a good time, but they're, it's not like as life-changing as it was for Betty and Alan. It's just kind of like- Betty and Alan, they just had communication issues for Candy. She was trying to completely create an affair. I mean, it's like totally different. And- Like, Pat's so in the dark about all of this. He has no idea what's going on. Um, So it gets a little bit more complicated because marriage encounter basically cultivates a community in and of itself. And so there's people in the community that are called flame masters. And (laughs) flame masters. There's so many jokes that could be made there. Um, And they are like a volunteer in a certain community that like makes sure that like the flame stays alive with all the couples and they like support them in their journey. Wow. Yeah. So it's it's supposed to be like we're all in this together. We're all building these great marriages and – Like kind of like when people get married sometimes and like the preacher, the person marrying them is we're all involved in this marriage because we have to support this couple, you know, like that sort of thing. And Betty is the flame master for their area. So she's like, I'm so excited you guys have gone through this just like us. Like you have to come over for dinner. We have to do marriage encounter get togethers. Like we're going to hang out all the time. And Alan and Candy are like, oh, okay. So now we have to like pretend we weren't like banging for like a million months. Whoa. Yeah. So at first, like Alan's like, can't like Candy, can you just like come up with a reason why you can't do it? But Candy's like, I don't know what I'm gonna tell my husband. Like, why wouldn't we do it? You know? So they end up having like these weird get-togethers. Ultimately it kind of helps because it kind of gets them into a new groove as just friends. Okay. So they get like out of the groove of seeing each other like that. And then um Pat finds out about the affair, even though it's over, because Candy kept some of the love letters and cards that Alan gave to her during the affair. Amateur hour. Super amateur. So one night he finds it out when she's she's like visiting Sherry or something. And he ends up having the most unbelievable reaction to it. He's just like, oh my gosh, this is my fault. I didn't give her enough attention. I didn't give her enough understanding. I was the one who chased her into another man's arms. And he like doesn't even get angry about it. He goes out and buys her a dozen roses like he did like when he first sent them to her. And he writes her a long letter about how he knows about the affair and how he loves her anyway and how he realizes like that he hasn't been paying attention to her needs at all and how he's going to be a changed man. And when she gets home, he's like, there's something for you on the bed and take as long as you want. Oh my god! And I won't like come up. And so she goes up, and apparently she's like up there for an hour, and he can hear her crying. So he's like, <gasps> and he goes upstairs. He's like, I'm sorry, I didn't. I wasn't going to come up, but I was so worried about you. And she is just horrified. She's just so guilt ridden. And I think like him responding so nicely makes it even worse. Like her guilt must have been through the roof because he's imagine? being so caring. No. It would make it at that if he was just like angry. Like you'd be like, whatever, dude. You know. But like the fact that he's like. He's making it his fault and you're like, no, no, it's not you. It's me. I know it's me. You know, like it would be terrible. So they actually work through this and they consider their marriage stronger. So 
going into like the spring and early summer of 1980, I think both couples at this point would consider their marriage as like the strongest they've ever been, you know? Yeah. And so Pat keeps it to himself. Yeah, Pat does not tell anyone. They they kind of like now together come up with excuses why they're not hanging out with the gores. At least they can kind of come together with that. Exactly. So they – but like they don't – he doesn't say anything to Betty. He even tells um, Candy that he's like, I don't think we should ever tell Betty about this because I know that she has some issues and she like probably couldn't handle it if she wow, found that's out. really thoughtful. Yeah. So he's like – he definitely doesn't want her to know. So basically Pat knows – Betty doesn't. And I don't think that Alan knows that Pat knows. They're just kind of like doing things separately. And at this point, too, another minister had joined the church and replaced Jackie Ponder. And I guess Betty didn't get along with the new minister. So they were also starting to go to a different church. So that makes things easier. For sure. This leads us to the morning of Friday, June 13th. So Candy is teaching vacation Bible school at the United Methodist Church of Lucas, Texas, the church that they both have been going to. Alisa Gore had slept over the night before, so she had accompanied the Montgomery children to Bible school, and now the kids were begging for Alisa to stay the night one more night so that they could go to the movies and see The Empire Strikes Back, which oh was God. obviously huge deal that for kids. like so much fun. Oh my God, absolutely. So Candy acquiesces, but this kind of puts a wrench in her whole day. She's got like serious mom grind going on. She already had to teach Bible school, drive a card table over to her friend Sherry's house, get gas, and go to the Target in Plano to get Father's Day cards for Pat. And now she also has to drive to the Gore's house to pick up Elisa's swimsuit for her swim lesson later that day and take Elisa to that swim lesson. So she's got a whole bunch of stuff to do if if Elisa ends up staying the night now. So she leaves the church sometime between like 9.30 and 10. And she says that she'll be back before the 11 a.m. puppet show that her son Ian is participating in. He's like a five-year-old kid. He's like super cute. But the puppet show goes on without Candy in attendance. Her son looks for her in the crowd, and he can't find her when he performs his lines. Oh, no. And Yeah, so Candy was supposed to be back to see him, and he's, like, looking for her, and she's not there. After the show, Candy's daughter, Jenny, is, like, asking several of the church women if they know where her mother is. And finally, minutes later, Candy rushes into the church, and she says that she got carried away talking to Betty – And um, she had thought she had enough time to go to Target. um, But when she pulled into the parking lot, she realized her watch had actually stopped. And so like without even going into the Target, she drove back to the church. But by the time she got back to the church, it was 1130 and the entire puppet show was over. So she missed her kid's puppet show. So at this point, she helps um, some of the ladies serve the luncheon. And she eats and chats with the other church women. And afterwards, she helps clean up. And then she takes the kids to a Walmart to pick up cards for Father's Day. And no one notices that anything is amiss at all with Candy, although one woman recalls that it was strange to see her wearing blue sneakers because she normally wore flip-flops all summer. So that, is that day – a strange observation. It's such a weird thing that you would remember. Yeah. But I guess it's like if you see the same people day in and day out. But even then, I don't know. I don't think I'd remember who normally wears flip-flops. No. Or like that during yeah. the summer you only wear flip-flops. Yeah, right? Like, also, in the, the book, they kept calling them thongs and it was really throwing me off instead of flip-flops. Yeah. And I just kept thinking of the underwear and I was like, how do you know that they always wear thongs? Her thong was really <laughs> riding up. 
basically what happens is Elisa attends her swim lesson and they eventually meet up with Pat after his work and they go to the movies and they see the obviously much anticipated sequel to Star Wars. But meanwhile, at Betty and Alan's house, um, this is from Evidence of Love, at 410 Dogwood Street, the home of Alan and Betty Gore, their two children and their two Cocker Spaniels, no one came or went on the afternoon of June 13th, 1980. The phone rang intermittently but wasn't answered. Around noon, a delivery man for a parcel service rang the doorbell but got no response. Around 4, Alan Gore himself placed a call from the Dallas-Fort Worth airport where he was about to board a plane. After 10 or 11 rings, he hung up. The only sign that the house was occupied at all was the muffled sound from within of a small baby crying at the top of its lungs. Behind the house, the two dogs skittered nervously around the yard, howling and whimpering by turns as if they were confused or perhaps simply frightened. So basically, no one's going into this house. Something obviously terrible has happened. And Al did Uh, have planned travel? Yes. So he had a business trip that weekend. So Alan is away on a business trip, which is – he's like going away that morning, um, which is always super stressful for Betty, even in the best of circumstances. And just this morning, um, she had told him that her period was super late and she was terrified of being pregnant again because obviously she had had postpartum issues before. Um, and also they had just gotten to their marriage in a good place and they – the next week they were planning on going on like a second European honeymoon. So Fine. they were going to drop the kids okay. in Kansas and she was like, if I'm pregnant, this will ruin that, ruins the whole vacation because their plans were like to drink wine and of have course. sex and yeah. be young again, Together. you know. Together and she's like, if I'm pregnant, it ruins that. It also like – she was getting into a really good groove at work and she knew that if she was like – pregnant in like May or June or whatever that then she would miss the spring, the entire like spring semester. So she's like doesn't want to miss any school. So she's like really petrified. And now of course he's also leaving, which always makes her upset. So she was like really upset that morning, but he like tried to say all the right things and he reassured her and he told her that like nothing was going to ruin their vacation, that even if she was pregnant, they were going to have so much fun. It's still Europe. It doesn't matter, you know, whether you can drink or not, like they're still going to have a good time and that they could handle anything. And he gave her and baby Bethany a kiss and he was going to work first, but he said he was going to call her from the office and then call her from the airport. Um, So when he calls around 4 p.m., there's no answer. So he hangs up and tries again and again, and there's no answer. Which must be so weird for her. It's so weird. She's always home. Yeah. So at this point, he's like, huh, maybe she took her the baby like on a stroller walk like around the neighborhood or something. And so he's like, okay, so maybe that there's that. So they get on the plane and they arrive in St. Paul, Minnesota, which is where his business trip is. And they check into a Ramada around 745 and they make plans to meet for dinner around 9. And while Alan is in his hotel room, he tries to call her again and it just rings and rings and rings. So at this point, he's like actually getting worried because she's never not home at 745. So he calls several times. He even calls the operator and asks the operator to dial – his home number just in case there's like some weird connection issue or there's something going on with the phone company and they can't reach her. Um, So he calls his next door neighbor and asks him to knock on the door and the next door neighbor comes back on the line and is like, yeah, I don't know what to tell you. She's just not – she's not coming to the door. She's not home, dude. 
So he then calls Candy to ask if she's seen Betty. And Candy explains that they're, they're keeping Elisa for another night, that they had just gotten home from watching the movie, um, but that she saw Betty earlier that day when she picked up her swimsuit and everything was fine. So Alan's like, okay. And she's like, well, do you want me to go over there? Do you want me to go like see what's going on? And he's like, no, no, no. I'll just like – I'll keep in touch with the neighbors. I'm not going to have you like drive all the way over there because they didn't live in similar parts of the the area. Okay. So at this point, he's like super nervous and he can't focus on his dinner, obviously. So he keeps getting up from the dinner and like using the restaurant's payphone. And he's just like this feel – it's so – can you feel the dread in the just – it's just palpable. So then like he asked the the guy to look, his neighbor to look in the garage. But the the neighbor, they have a small rabbit Volkswagen that is – it actually was pulled in very close to the front of the garage and he looks in the back of the garage and so he doesn't think at first that the car is in there. So he tells Alan that like, oh, I only see one car. So one car's missing. So she must be out. And Alan's like, this doesn't make any sense. She would never be out. She doesn't like to drive past dark. Like it's yeah, where's the her. baby? Where's the baby? Where like this doesn't make any sense. The baby should be in bed. And and so the the neighbor's like, well, maybe like she was in an accident. Do you want to so the neighbor gives him all these phone numbers for like all the hospitals in the area and the police and they he makes these calls now and he's like it was my wife in an accident and they're like no one's heard about anything like this so oh, there she's not in any of the hospitals so then the neighbor calls back and is like oh I screwed up they're actually the car is there so he's like but he's like but that doesn't make me feel better because why isn't she answering the door then? of course yeah go figure out what's so going is, on <laughs> yeah so at this point he's like I know it's really late and I'm sorry to do this, but you have to break into my house. Yeah. Just break into my house. So the guy's like, oh, okay. I'm going to like go around and like see if there's like a place I can like shimmy open a window. And he's like, I don't care if you have to break a window. Just get into my house. And so he hangs up and then he's nervous that like his one neighbor isn't going to do it because he seemed really nervous. So he calls another neighbor and he calls the other neighbor and he's like, hey, I just told like Jim to go break into my house. Like you have to help him. Like I'm telling you, you need to get in there. I don't know what's going on with my wife. And so the other guy comes out and they alerted a third guy, which is why there was three neighbors going into their house that night. So obviously the scene that I described at the beginning happens. The guys go into the house. It's dark. The baby's crying. The baby has been there for 13 hours. Insane. Which just like as a mom, I'm like, Oh, like to me, that's almost worse than the murder. Like thinking of a baby while her mother is getting killed and then just being stuck there for hours. It's horrible. It's horrible. So they, you know, they take the baby away. And then, of course, they make the gruesome discovery of Betty's mutilated body. It's just beyond. So the men call the police and they're like freaking out about what to do when the phone rings in the house. And so the one guy answers it. And it's, of course, Alan trying to figure out what's going on. Oh, my God. And they don't know like what to say to him. They're like, well, the baby's okay. We have the baby. She's fine. And he's like, what about my wife? What about Betty? What's going on? And they're like, I'm sorry. Uh, It looks like she shot her head off. For some reason, the men see the bloody corpse and like how half of her face is missing. And they think that it was like a shotgun to the face. Yeah. I mean, how are you supposed to digest that? Yeah. You have you would have no idea. You would just see a corpse and like your brain would go to the most obvious thing. So at this point, they think it maybe is a suicide. Yeah. Like maybe she shot herself. And Alan is so confused because they don't even own a gun. So he's like, how did this 
happen. So he calls Betty's parents to tell them that Betty's dead. He doesn't know the details. He's going to come home so he can find out, but he wanted to tell them. And then he calls Candy to see if they can keep Elisa a little longer yeah. because obviously she can't drop Elisa off at the house. So he has to call Candy oh and Candy's God. like crying. She's like, this is so terrible. And then he finally calls his colleagues and he starts making plans to go home. So the cops come and they cordon off the scene and they interview the neighbors and they get to work on the forensics. So the first thing they realize is that she was not shot. She was attacked with an axe. It's a three-foot axe. Brutal. Just so big. Um, And it's lying a few feet from her, half concealed under the freezer in the utility room. It appears the entire attack and struggle took place in the same room, in the utility room. Her body has been ravaged by 41 axe wounds, and 28 of those are just to her face and head. How? Oh, so that's why she's like basically one side of her face is like caved in. So spread out on the dining room table is the Dallas Morning News and it's open to an advertisement for The Shining. Ooh. So it's just at first like when the sheriff goes in there, they're like, does this have something to do with it? Because obviously Jack Nicholson's big famous scene in that yeah. is with an axe. Yeah. So they're like, is this some weird cult thing? The movie had just come out. They find bloody footprints in like in the on the bath mat and blood in like the shower in the bathroom. So it appears the killer showered after the murder. What? Uh, yeah. So it appears whoever attacked her then took a shower. So they're they're now recovering hair from the drain to test in the lab. They also lift one perfect fingerprint in blood off of the freezer in the utility room. They find bloody shoe prints in the hall and in the utility room, and they also find a lone fingernail in the living room. So they're getting some good forensic evidence here. There's also cash left untouched on the dresser, so they rule out burglary. Yeah, burglary. Um, After burglary. (laughs) I don't know why I can't say that like a normal person. Burglary. (laughs) (laughs) After nearly six hours of bagging and tagging the evidence, the forensic criminal investigator is conclusive about two things. One, it was not premeditated. The weapon is too weird. It's like too odd to like say you're going to go and kill somebody and use something that's so clumsy and that there were signs of a massive struggle and it seemed a crime of circumstance. Like people were fighting and somebody just picked up the axe, you know? And then two, that the footprints in the utility room are too small to be a man's. So the perpetrator has to be a woman or a kid. So up to that point, I like – was still uncertain about who it was. Yeah, but I bet you have a pretty good idea now. I have a little hunch. (laughs) So the medical examiner then studies the body and all but one of the wax were committed while Betty was still alive. What? Yeah. How can they figure that out? They can figure it out by basically that the heart was either beating or not beating and how the blood clots, like whether the blood is like – flowing or, you know. So the majority of the attack was to her face and head. She had multiple wounds, especially in the back of her head, that were consistent with like somebody wiggling the axe to get it out, like that they whacked her and then it got stuck like when you're chopping wood. And then you have to like wiggle it to get it out, which is so horrifying. And of course, the right side of her face is missing and caved in and she's lost her right eye. So in short, it's a devastatingly horrific attack. So the police first suspect Alan. I think 
A, because it's always a husband, but also they had found a lot of their marriage encounter materials, which talked about different problems they had been having in their marriage and different communication tactics they were trying. So they knew it was a troubled marriage from the beginning. But his alibi is rock solid. He was at work all day with multiple witnesses, and then he went straight to the airport. Well, and the footprint. Yeah. So, yeah, obviously it's a small footprint. Which is definitely not. Is it a thong footprint? It might be. It just might be a thong little print. Yes, thong print. Yes. I was thinking it's it's a good thing it wasn't uh, Idina from the last story with the size three feet because she'd be pretty pretty easy to find. No, I also feel like flip flops are not the ideal murder shoe. No, you don't want to wear flip flops to a murder. Absolutely not. I mean, that's another reason that we can believe that this isn't premeditated. Exactly. Because that is not what you want to be wearing to an axe murder. So they're like, they they definitely know he didn't do it, but they're still troubled by his reaction because he's reacting very cool and collected to it. He's not seeming like the type of husband, he's not getting upset about his wife's it's kind really of his horrific personality, death. though. He's a rational, calm human. Yeah. So they're just kind of like, I don't know, is something else going on? I mean, they have nowhere else to start with this. So they're starting with him, obviously. Yeah. So by the next day, it's already all over the news. So I don't know if it was the neighbors or somebody leaked it from the police, but like literally the next day, everybody knows about it. The community is completely whipped into a frenzy because there's a psychotic axe murderer in this tiny sleepy town. Like, of course they're scared. If somebody was like, if my neighbor was axe murdered, I'd be like fucking freaked out. On Friday the 13th, no less. It's terrifying. On Friday the 13th. Yeah, yeah with the shining yeah. open on her table. So on Sunday after church, Candy approaches Don Crowder, who is a personal injury attorney, who is a major donor to the church. And he's also the only attorney that attends this church. And so she asks him for advice. She says that the police want to talk to her because she's the last person to have seen Betty alive. And she asks him if she needs an attorney or if she should be worried. And he's like, oh, hell no. They just want to talk to everyone. You're a sweet little woman. You couldn't kill anyone with an axe. Lol, 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 lol. Lol, lol. Lol, lol, lol. (laughs) So her first interview is Sunday evening, which is on Father's Day uh, with the police. And she gives them a rundown of her day, and they ask her to bring by the shoes that she was wearing that day um, so they can exclude her footprints. But their congenial and polite attitude towards her changes after Alan Gore admits to their affair in his next interview. Ooh. So now it's not looking so good for old Candy. So when she comes in next time, she doesn't know that Alan told them. So they dig into her timeline and they also realize that she lied about when she said she left the house. So she told the police she left at 10.20 a.m., but a little girl in the neighborhood reported seeing a woman in blue jeans leaving the house at 11 a.m. And her grandmother backed her up. So they lean hard on her in the next interview. And they like straight up are like, you killed her because it was your lover's wife. And they're like coming at her like good cop, bad cop. And she's just like, uh, no, I didn't. So she admits the affair but denies the murder. And they're like, fine. But then you have to come back tomorrow and do a polygraph to prove that you didn't kill her. So she is flipped out. And then they walk her out. And when they walk her out, one of the police officers sees a pair of shoes in her car. It's just like a pair of sneakers. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to need to take those. And I'm also going to need to take the ones that are on your feet like right now. So she had actually already 
destroyed the flip flops. Of course. Yeah. So these weren't the shoes, but they like, she had to drive home like barefoot and scared out of her mind at this point. And so she goes home to her husband and she's like hysterical. And immediately her husband calls Don Crowder, the the only attorney that they know, right away. The token attorney. (laughs) Token attorney. Don Crowder is actually a very interesting guy. Like a lot of times uh, you'll hear an attorney referred to as like a street brawler, meaning like he or she's a dirty fighter and like a tough cookie in court. But growing up, Don was literally a street fighter. He had lost a dozen teeth in brawls by the time he was 19. A dozen teeth. (laughs) So he was like a really tough, scrappy kid. He used to say, you want to learn how to fight? Grow up with buck teeth. Now apparently no teeth. Um, so he almost played football professionally. He had gotten a scholarship to college, but he had been like hit so many times that his, um, cornea was almost detached. Oh my God. And so when he, he got to an NFL team, the doctor actually said like, we're cutting you from the team because if you get hit, maybe even one more time, you could be blind. Wow. Yeah, so he he got cut from that team and he was so sad cuz he had dreamed of playing in the NFL, so he like actually fell back on law school and becomes an attorney and he um got into personal injury law because he liked advocating for the underdog and he was so effective that he won his first 19 trials in a row. Whoa. But he had never, ever done criminal law. So it's really interesting. At first, he was giving Candy advice and then he was going to like maybe hook her up with a real criminal defense attorney. But he got like deeper into the case and he was like, fuck it, I can do this. So he kind of has some brass balls over here to do a type of law that he's literally never practiced. Yeah, and on behalf of the potential criminal. Exactly. So, yeah, he is not a defense attorney. This is wild. Um, So he takes over Candy's case. He calls the police and he cancels her polygraph. He's like, my client doesn't have to do this. And then he sets up a polygraph like with a private polygraph company so that he can basically like test her to see how she would do before they do it for the police. Before the polygraph, she goes over to his house to prepare and they're talking um, and he's kind of – he's trying to find out the real story because she had been interviewed by two of his associates and what they thought was happening was that she didn't do the killing but she knew somebody or was covering up for it because she was very vague and weird about it. So he basically starts leaning on her like, hey, I know you're covering for somebody. You shouldn't do that. Tell, Tell me what's really going on. And she's like, no, it, you know, it wasn't anyone else. And he's like, is it Alan? Like, did somebody kill for Alan and you're covering up for Alan because I know you were in a relationship with him? She's like, no, it's not Alan. And he's like, well, how do you know it's not Alan? And she's like, I know because I did it. Yeah, I was going to say, I do the her. lawyers actually want you to admit or are they trying to like plant a I don't – I think – I have read that a lot of defense attorneys actually don't want to know the truth. They want to construct a story and have you stick with it. But also Don isn't a defense attorney. He's a personal injury attorney. So maybe he doesn't know how to do this, you know. So he gets the real fucking story from her. And when she tells him the story, he's like, holy shit, we have a self-defense case. She says that she hit Betty, 41 times with an axe in self-defense. Against what? Yeah. Okay. So basically, I'm going to run through how this gets to trial, and then I'm going to give you the whole story that Candy says at testimony. I just want this to sink in for you that 
she is saying she killed a woman with an axe in self-defense. So 13 days after the murder, Candy Montgomery is arrested for Betty Gore's murder. And at one of the interviews, the police had taken Candy's fingerprints, and they obviously match it with the bloody print found in the freezer. They don't have the exact shoe, obviously, but it's clear that by the shoes they took, she's the same size. Yeah. Plus, they found her hair in, in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. So they have way enough to arrest her. I mean, she so, had to clean up for the puppet show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So she's let out of jail on $100,000 bail, which Pat puts up for her. And during this period between her arrest and the trial, like she keeps going to church and like participating in this community and like living her life. And how is it going with her? Well, so the larger community, like the people who are reading about this in like the Dallas Morning News are like horrified because at first before she was arrested, they were saying things like, you know, the husband of the deceased was having an affair. So there's already like press about the fact that she was having an affair. And they were saying like husband's friend, they were using like a euphemism. But when she gets arrested, obviously they know it's her. So the greater like Dallas community is like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. This like woman did it for a love affair. But her small church community is completely behind her. Whoa. Yeah, they're like, she didn't tell any of them that it was self-defense. Like, she didn't tell anybody that she did it because obviously her attorney didn't want her to. So they're just like, I can't believe that they would say this about you. We know you would never do this. You couldn't hurt a fly. You're just the best person in the world. So they are like – Exactly. So they're completely behind her. So meanwhile, to prep for trial, Don Crowder hires like a hypno-psychiatrist, like this hypnotherapist guy named Dr. Faison to examine Candy. And Dr. Faison like originally didn't want to do it because uh, testifying at these types of trial isn't very good PR for him if he's like helping defend murderers. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So he's like, yeah, I I don't think I'm interested in doing this or helping you or like testifying on your behalf. And he's like, Don basically begs him. He's like, I'm going to fly Candy out to you. You talk to her. And if you don't believe her story, then you don't have to testify on her behalf. But he interviews Candy and he hypnotizes her. And he completely believes she's not a sociopath and that she actually did this in self-defense. Stop. Yeah. So Dr. Faison is like all in for Candy and for helping Don Crowder and their defense. So this relationship is really interesting. And we're going to jump straight to into the trial now because I want to tell you everything as it comes out in the trial. Okay. So uh, the trial takes place in October of 1980 and it closes just days before Halloween, which is wild considering that the crime happened on Friday the 13th. Yeah. Of the same year, right? Of the same year. Okay. Like things – it went fast. Yeah. Um, there's like a bunch of stuff leading up to the trial that was really wild. Like this this judge hated Don Crowder and they had like fought about getting Candy out of jail. They had fought about trying to move the uh, trial to another county because obviously everybody knew about this case and they were afraid she wouldn't get a good uh, – like a fair jury. And every single time the judge was like, nope, nope, nope. Nope. They had to like work so hard to get Candy out on bail. And this is it's really funny because like the judge hated Don Crowder so much that he actually like held him in contempt of court during the trial. Like one weekend of the trial, Don had to spend in jail. Like this is how bad the judge and this attorney are fighting. So he's already not a defense attorney and he is already like 
ended up picking a fight with a judge. So it doesn't look great for Candy. No. You know? And so the first time the prosecution or anyone hears about Don's defense strategy is at jury selection at the opening of the trial. So this is what he says. This is from his exact court remarks that Evidence of Love uh, noted. It's not proper for me at this time to discuss the facts with you, he said. And of course, Mr. O'Connell, that's the prosecutor, didn't discuss the facts with you either. But there is something I've got to tell you now for me to be able to discuss the law with you. On Friday, June the 13th, 1980, Candace Montgomery killed Betty Gore. She did so with an axe. She did so in self-defense. The 62 jury, jury panelists were stunned. Two women started to cry. Candy, seated at the defense table, started to tremble. She fought back tears and held a clenched fist to her mouth. Don cast a quick glance over at the prosecution table and thought he saw O'Connell's face flush more deeply. So they had no idea until this point that that's what he was going to do. So they have all this evidence that she did it. And then he's just coming out and being like, yeah, she did it. So they have to completely change how they present this case because they, when she said she was going not guilty, they just assumed she was going like, I didn't do it at all, you know? The homicide was justified, he continued. We haven't chosen to try our case in the papers. That is the reason you've never heard about that from anybody until now. This is the place where the trial takes place, right now, right here. This is where it all starts. That's where all of the evidence will come from. If you're going to convict, then make sure it comes from there. We have quite a story to tell, quite a story, and it hasn't appeared in the papers, and you haven't got a hint of it, most likely, and you won't until it comes from the witness stand. I hope it will make you feel better that Mrs. Montgomery will take the stand. She intends to testify, testify completely and fully as the event that occurred. Now, if you've read the papers, he began, you know that there is an affair involved here. Mrs. Montgomery sinned. She acknowledges it. But she is not on trial here for that sin. Some of you, I'm sure many of you, are Christians on this panel. I'm sure many of you have very strong feelings about the Seventh Commandment, about adultery. There's nothing wrong with having those strong feelings, and I'm not asking you to forgive her. Not at this stage or ever, nor is she. But we're asking, can you decide this case on the evidence without letting the affair muddle your mind? If you cannot, please speak up now. Yeah, I get why he did all that. Uh Uh-huh. So he, like, just put it all on the table. And immediately a bunch of, like, older women were like, yeah, I can't – I can't do this. I can't look past the affair. I can't look past the affair and that she just admitted to axe murder. Like, this is insane. So how many people were left? How many jurors were uh, They end up with 12 jurors and nine of the 12 are women, which conventionally this isn't great for Candy because it's been proven that women are actually harsher on other women than men are. Yeah, that makes sense. But it is truly a jury of her peers. There was like five of the people had spouses who worked at Texas Instruments, which is where Pat works. Yeah. Um, there was like an electrical engineer. There was like even Don Crowder's daughter's track coach somehow slipped through. So there was definitely people who were in her, like, affluent engineer husband world, you know? Crazy. Yeah. So when the jury is selected, the trial is set to begin, and the Pomeroy's Betty's parents are supposed to come from Kansas, but only her father can emotionally handle it. So he comes out by himself, and at this point, Bob had gotten wind of the self-defense play, and he was totally, like, aghast. He just couldn't imagine that his daughter – would have attacked this woman and and he can't believe that this is what she's saying. But he's also getting increasingly frustrated with Alan, his son-in-law, because he seems super apathetic to the case. And he 
like was even remarking like, oh, you know, Candy and her family have to spend all this money on their defense and stuff. And he's like, why do I care how much money the woman who killed my daughter is spending on her defense? Because it was one of her friends. Yeah. So Alan's like, yeah, the Montgomery's are really going through it. And he's like, so it's Betty's dad. And he's like, what the hell? And I guess little Elisa kind of blew her father's cover because he had started dating somebody already. Like this is only months after Betty was murdered. The, The trial is just starting and he's already seeing somebody. It was a woman named Elaine who was a divorcee from the church. Oh, man. So apparently she started like bringing him food and stuff and that's – it like turned into a romance. So I feel like if you're Betty's dad, you're like, why aren't you more passionate about this? And also, why are you dating right now? Yeah. Like it hasn't even been – like I think at this point it was from June to October. Like that's real fast. the woman scorned who potentially killed his daughter – is could be has doing it because of the affair that he had with her. Yeah. yeah, I would really not like this yeah. if this was my son-in-law. So yeah, so basically he's really upset with the whole situation and he's coming out and it's just it's very bewildering to him because he's just like a farmer from Kansas and he's dealing with a media circus and he has no support uh, from anyone. Yeah. He apparently was like trying to get answers from the police and the prosecution and they really weren't even talking to him, so he's like learning things from the papers, you know. So the poor guy comes out from Kansas. Um, So the trial begins. Alan was the first to testify, and it was supposed to be for the prosecution, but his answers actually seemed to aid Candy. Like, he claims the ending of the affair. I know. Like, everything is kind of, like, helping Candy. Like, they're asking him, like, if she was upset when the affair ended. And he's like, no, it was pretty mutual. Like, she didn't seem bothered by it. And he said he, like, never saw Candy out of sorts or in any sort of rage. But, I mean, he, he had could be no- being honest. Yeah. And, I mean, that's what he said. Yeah. He wasn't, like – he was just being totally honest about it. Like, he's not going to lie. Yeah. But you can see how it would seem almost like he was trying to help her. So he said that she had absolutely no reason to want Betty dead. And he even said that his first assumption on hearing that Betty was dead was that it was suicide because Betty was chronically depressed. Yeah. And he confirmed that Candy had never been in his garage. She would have had no idea where his axe was kept. Like, it's just not something that you would, you know, show your guests. You're not like, in here, here's my three-foot axe. So even the church ladies at the prosecution called to share the lies that Candy told when she returned from Betty's seemed to still be on her side. All of them said that the idea of her being a killer or being violent for no reason was just inconceivable, and they still were supporting her. So the one thing that really hurts her is the medical examiner testifying to the gruesome nature of the crime because they're like bringing up photos and they're talking about every hit and that she was still technically alive. But at the same time, the medical examiner says that because of the adrenaline, because they were both in this attack, it's possible that she wasn't conscious. It was just like the adrenaline had her body pumping or, you know, like, so she wasn't, even though she was technically alive for this, it doesn't mean she was like feeling every blow, you know? And he also says that he could not rule out self-defense. Basically, it's entirely possible. Like, it appeared that there was a a much of a big struggle. So he's like, yeah, it's possible that it was self-defense. So they're not really ruling out anything that the defense is saying. But, like, self-defense against what? Her hands? Well, what Candy ultimately says is that Betty came at her first with the axe, and then she got it out of her hands, Got it. Okay. 
Okay. This is where it's like tricky because we're going to go into her story next, but that's exactly the point is when she did get it out of her hands, why didn't she just leave the house, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You don't have to hit her 41 times. Exactly. Or you get one good whack in to like make sure she's immobile and then you run to the police, yeah. you know? yeah. Her car was outside. She could run – if she immobilized her, you know, she could get in her car and then drive away and be like, she attacked me. So it's still very hard to believe this truly was self-defense. So basically what the prosecution brings up before they rest is that, you know, they're saying that she's the killer. Obviously, she's the killer. But if it was self-defense, why did she try to conceal the crime? Why didn't she leave and say, I was attacked and I was hurt, you know? Why did she, like, go back to the church like every – like, was fine, you know? So the first oh, the witness for the defense – She went to the puppet show so and to weird. the church luncheon. And then she went and ran errands and went to a movie, you know? So the first witness for the defense is Candy herself. And this is where we finally learn what, according to Candy, exactly happened that day. So this is all taken from Candy's testimony, and I'm paraphrasing most of it. Candy showed up at Betty's house unexpectedly mid-morning because Elisa was supposed to be dropped off after Bible school, but instead Candy just showed up in the morning and said that she wanted to ask if Elisa could spend the night again, and if so, she was going to grab the swimsuit. So Betty said that was fine, but she seemed like a little off and distracted. Then they chatted about where Elisa's swim lessons were, so like, you know, Candy could remember where to take her. And they talked about the trip the Gores were taking to Europe the next week and also about a new Cocker Spaniel puppy the family had just adopted. So at this point, Candy's like, oh, I have to see the puppy. So they go in the backyard and she plays with the puppy a little bit. And then upon reentry to the house, they basically sit down in the living room and they're just kind of chatting for a while. And Candy tells Betty about a new wallpapering business she's starting with her best friend, Sherry. And she even leaves a business card for Betty at this point. And after this, they're like still sitting in the living room and Candy's like, okay, well, you know, I have to get back to the church. So can you grab that swimsuit for me? And Betty doesn't say anything. She just like pauses awkwardly. And all of a sudden she leans forward and she's like, Candy, are you having an affair with Alan? And Candy was like completely taken aback and said, no, of course not. And so Betty says, but you did didn't you? And at this point, Candy's like, um, yes, but it was a long time ago. And then she's like completely surprised Alan would tell her. So she's like, did Alan tell you? And and Betty just gets up from her seat and says like, wait a minute. So she returns, Betty returns holding the axe, according to Candy, in the living room. And she says, I don't want you to ever see him again. You can't have him. So Candy's like panicking, of course, because Betty's like holding this axe. And she says, Betty, it's been over for a long time. I'm not seeing him. I don't want him. And she grabs her purse at this point to stand up to leave. And Betty's like not holding it in a threatening way, she said at this point. She's like weirdly holding it just like loosely and like down. So scary. It's so scary. And so Candy said – don't be ridiculous, Betty. It was ha- it was over a long time ago as she's like starting to leave. And she's like, well, don't see him again, Betty ordered. Candy started to move towards the door. And she said, under the circumstances, I think I'll just bring Elisa home after Bible school. Like, obviously, just leave. If somebody has an ax, just leave. Just leave as fast yeah. as you can. 
So Betty said, no, I don't want to see you anymore. Just keep Elisa and take her to the movie because I don't want to look at you again. Bring her home tomorrow. So at this point, Betty had laid the axe against the wall and walked past Candy. And she was like, I'm just going to get the towel from the bathroom. Can you get Elisa's swimsuit off the washer? So Candy's like, I guess that was just like kind of like to scare her away from her husband, like for show kind of thing. Okay. Because now she's put the axe down and she's walked like away into the bathroom to get a towel for Elisa. So she's like, okay. So she's still on edge, but she walks into the utility room to go to where the washing machine is to pick up Elisa's swimsuit. And Betty basically like meets her at the door of the utility room and Candy folds the towel and suit in her purse and she's trying to get by like around the door around Betty. And as she does, she puts her hand on Buddy Betty's shoulder and she's like, oh, Betty, I'm so sorry. And she just is like kind of does this way that's like kind of condescending and like pitying. Yeah. And apparently it makes Betty erupt and she shoves Candy backwards, like back into the utility room like and candy's like on her ass and um betty grabs the the axe and she starts screaming you can't have him you can't have him you can't have him i'm going to have a baby and you can't have him this time which might have been a reference to her knowing that they were having an affair when she was pregnant last time yeah or that she was pregnant now maybe too mm-hmm Yikes. Exactly. That's what I think. I think she believed she was pregnant, which the the autopsy revealed that she was actually about to get her period. So she wasn't okay, pregnant. Good, good. But okay. she thought she was. Yeah. I think she thought she was pregnant again. And I think that she had an idea that he had done this before when horrible. she was pregnant. Yeah. So horrible. So she starts swinging the axe like really poorly and candy manages like to like somehow get a hold of the handle and she is pleading like betty don't this is stupid i don't want him i don't want alan and they're struggling with each other and finally betty frees like the axe from candy but when she's doing it the way she like gets the axe back the like flat side of the axe hits candy in the head like at her hairline and she starts immediately bleeding because i I think you know that head wounds bleed a a crap ton so candy got injured too candy got injured like a couple times so when she went to the police station she had a cut in her scalp and she had bruises like all over her legs did they get photos of those yes so the cops had photos of all of this as well Um, and she also has a wound to her toe because at this point, because of the flip-flops, she was wearing flip-flops and, uh, while they're like struggling, basically what happens is she's still swinging the ax. So Betty got it back and then hit her in the head and then she swings back and she like chops at her and it, she misses uh, Candy's foot, but the um, axe bounces, and when it comes back down from the bounce, it nicks uh, Candy's toe pretty deep. So if she had followed through with like the first whack, it would have like cut her, her off. part of her foot off. Yeah. Um, but instead, it had like hit the floor, bounced, and went back up, and then it came down on Candy's toe. So Candy's bleeding now from the head and from the toe, and I guess Betty is like saying something like, I've got to kill you now. And I think at this point, like, this is where Candy's, like, survival instincts kick kick in because she now she's, like, bleeding from two parts of her body. Yeah. Which she did 
have these wounds. And so they're grappling with the the axe and Candy manages to now wrestle it away from Betty and she goes to swing it at Betty and Betty turns like to not get hit. Okay. Sorry if I'm away from the microphone. I'm like <laughs> acting this out for Andy. And uh, Candy gets her in the back of the head and Betty like momentarily goes down. So Candy's like, oh, fuck, I killed her. I think I killed her. And she's like drops the axe to go leave. And Betty gets up bleeding from the head and like tackles her. My God. Before she can get to the door. And so now there's like blood everywhere from Betty, from Candy. They're like slipping in the blood while they're struggling with each other. And Betty manages to get the axe from Candy again. And she's like trying to hit candy with it and and candy's begging betty to stop and betty says shh like shh be quiet and it triggers something so crazy violent in candy and so apparently when the psychiatrist did the the hypnotizing he brought her back to the event this event that we're talking about and then he's like go back further to a time that you felt this angry and this much rage and he regressed her to a time she was like four or five and she was living in France and she had had a foot race with another little boy to this like water pump and she was racing him holding a glass jar she was supposed to put water in and he beat her and she got so angry that she um, smashed the glass on the metal water pump and uh, a piece of the glass went into her forehead and lodged there. So she was bleeding really badly. Yeah. And so at that point, her mom had to take her to the hospital and get stitches. And she was screaming and screaming while they were trying to like sedate her and put the stitches in her. And her mom was going, shh, shh. Like and trying, she was like, "What will the people in the waiting room think? You have to stop screaming. Like, what will the people think?" And apparently, this therapist said that that was like this trigger word for her. She was already like heightened, and then when she heard this phrase, it like triggered this insane anger, rage, animalistic response. And she like got the the axe out of Betty's hand and she just starts going to town. I mean, she just starts hitting her even when she's down and she's on the ground. She just keeps swinging the axe. Like like, literally, she like blacked out in rage and she like comes to and obviously there's blood everywhere. There's blood all over her body. And Betty is just Uh, like doesn't exist anymore she's not a person you know how could she then leave the baby there too i don't know i mean that's the one thing that gets me she's a mom you know that she would just leave the baby then she finds out later that alan's on a business trip like i can understand if she's like okay alan's gonna be home in a couple hours the baby's not gonna die in four hours you know or something but like when you know he's on a business trip and he's in another city. I mean, I think it would have been really smart of her to kind of insist on going over there, being like, oh, don't worry about it, Al. I can, Alan, I can just go over there and I'll check for you because A, she would have gotten to save the baby. Yeah. And B, there would have been a reason for her footprints to be in the blood. She could be like, I walked in the room and I like walked around and and there would be a reason like and then I tried to t- help her and then I touched the freezer yeah. like it probably would have been 
good if she had insisted on going over there. Less incriminating and more just kind of she was at the scene of the crime after. Exactly. And they would have been like, she really screwed up the crime, but nobody would have, like, have assumed this tiny little woman was capable no. of this. So she could have gone away with it. But I think, honestly, this was a – what a psychiatrist later says, a disassociative episode. So she was basically like working on autopilot. I mean, maybe she wasn't even thinking about the baby. She was like, I've got to – like, basically, she recalled feeling dirty and gross and like she had to get all this stuff off of her. But like – not anything else. And then she was like, wait. And then it like weirdly clicked back in that she had all of these things to do. Like, oh, I have to go back to the church. I have to go do this. Like, I don't know if she was really conscious and thinking at this point. So she basically took a shower fully clothed and then she tried to scrub some of the blood off the bathroom. And then she said to herself, you have to be normal. And she drove herself home. She washed and dried the blouse. Like she was wearing the same blouse later. She like – she must have some super stain stick stuff because she got all the blood stains out of the shirt, washed it and dried it and put the same shirt back on, put a different pair of jeans on. And then obviously her toe was like cut all the way open. So she had to put sneak a bandage and sneakers. And then she like dried her hair and put a bandage like in her hair. And, like, no one noticed the difference. Isn't that insane? Yeah, that's crazy. Except that one lady at the grocery store who noticed that she wasn't wearing her sandals. <laughs> it was the one lady who noticed that she was wearing sneakers, and that was so weird. <laughs> so she had been kind of unemotional throughout this experience, and Don had been trying to, like, get emotions out of her. So he's asking her all these questions, and after she gives the whole story – he like actually gets in her face with the axe, with the actual axe. And he's like, you killed her with this. This is your fault and stuff. Like her own attorney is like yelling at her and she finally like breaks down and starts like crying so hard, obviously. And it was on purpose. He was deliberately trying to provoke that response. So she looked sorry. And a human, yeah. And a human. Yeah. So the jury is just stunned. I mean, this is a crazy story. So the prosecution had focused on her, like, lives and concealment, and then they throw Candy a curveball when they're interrogating her on the stand, questioning her. Interrogating his police, yeah. questioning her, his <laughs> prosecutors. So so she gets, you know, cross-examined by the, the prosecutors, and they bring up her second affair. And this she had no idea that they knew about it. So now she's looking bad again because I think some people can maybe forgive one affair, but now she's like a habitual cheater. Yeah. They also make her reveal his name and she knows how like how much media is in there. And she's like, no, you know, he's another married man. I'm not going to ruin his life. And the judge like makes her say who the guy Ooh, is. That's messed up. Why? It would just seem so messed up. I, it was mostly because Don was objecting and the judge hated Don. So oh, the man, judge was like, I'll let it stand. That's not it cool. ruined a guy's life. Yeah. And also, she had never told Pat, her husband, about the second affair. Oh, man. So now he's going to find out about it through the news. Like, he was a witness, so he couldn't view this, but he was in, like, the witness room. But he's going to find out about it. So she has to tell him as soon as she gets off the stand. So this outed that guy to his family, but it also outs her to her husband about the second affair. 
So when Candy is let down from the stand, she tells Pat the truth and he's like so destroyed by it. It's like almost it's way worse than when he found out about Alan Gore. And it's like with everything else that's going on, he's just devastated. And Don Crowder apparently like tries to comfort him by saying, quote, she shouldn't have done it, Pat, but it's over. It doesn't matter if she fucked a hundred men, so long as she doesn't do it again. Now, come on. We've got to pull this thing back together. Oh, my God. Love him. <laughs> He's got the pep talk, this guy. <laughs> so next, there's a string of doctors who testified that Candy's um, act was a, like a disassociative reaction. And one of the last witnesses is Dr. Faison, who outlined the 20 or so hours he had spent with Candy. He confirmed the disassociative reaction and he discussed his findings with Candy under hypnosis, like everything that she told him honestly about the murder and about like the big point being this like shh response. And does her story under hypnosis match the story that she gave in court? Exactly. So he really believes that she basically was defending herself and then she had this weird disassociative episode and and she just was in a a flurry. So now it's time for closing remarks and this is what Don says. I know that there are things in this case that still bother you. I'd be a fool not to recognize that. How in God's name could one human being inflict the kind of punishment Candy Montgomery inflicted on another? Well, I've got an answer. When Betty Gore came at Mrs. Montgomery, she was no longer a human being. She was an animal. She had turned into something less than a human being. She was an animal in search of prey. She was ready to attack. John Steinbeck once wrote that there are those among us who live in rooms of experience you and I cannot enter. But if you're worried about whether or not Mrs. Montgomery is ever going to be punished in this case or has not been punished in this case, don't worry about it any longer because she lives in that room of experience and we can't enter it. She lives in it and she's locked in it and it now constitutes a cell, a jail cell. And her family has moved in and Betty Gore threw away the key on June 13th. They've lost their home. They're heavily in debt. They're moving away from this area to start anew. They've been punished and they'll be forever punished. There won't be a day in the life of Mrs. Montgomery that she'll ever put out of her mind that she committed this act on June 13th, 1980. But you have an opportunity here to allow a family to stay together. Don't rob two children of their mother. Which seems like not the thing to say when she literally robbed two children of their mother. Yep. Don't rob a husband of his wife. Again, woof. There's been an American tragedy played out at this courtroom, but conviction, a conviction is not a proper solution to that particular tragedy. Perhaps there's forces working in this case that you and I can't understand. To a woman named Gore, an event of massive tragedy took place on June 13th, a Friday the 13th, and this case will end very nearly on Halloween. Maybe there's something involved here we can't understand, something greater than all of us, but you can understand this. The state has not proved its case. The reasonable that reasonable doubt exists. Good luck to you. So that's what he said to the jury member. I mean, he's so well spoken, but yeah, that those couple of lines about taking a mother. Oh, I felt like that. Could you imagine saying that in front of Betty's parents? No, you know, and husband and like, children. Yeah, it's just it, it struck me as like a little off, and apparently a gasp went through the crowd when he said those things. The jury deliberates for only three and a half hours. Whoa. Which is not a very long time. Or considering what happened. Considering what happened and how complex this case yeah. is, three and a half hours is nothing. So at first they're a little nervous because it seems like they came to a conclusion very quickly. But what are they and deliberating? Then, are they deliberating like first or second degree murder or? They're they're doing um like first degree like premeditated murder. Okay. 
or manslaughter. Okay. Or like completely acquitted, not guilty. Okay. And so everyone pretty much agrees that it's not premeditated. So that's out. So okay. really they're like arguing back and forth about whether or not it's manslaughter. Yeah. And the jury comes back acquitting, not guilty feeling. of everything. I had a feeling. I had a feeling. That is wild. Oh my God. This Isn't that moment. crazy? Oh. It's unbelievable. When I was reading the book, I was like, oh my God. I actually did not think it. You thought so, but I did not think they were going to acquit her. It's Texas. She had affairs. I she know, she's a church this lady. Woman. She's a church lady. Uh, yeah. This actually goes to the next point is that uh, you know, she's so excited that she got off and she's like, now everybody knows I'm not a killer. And it's like, no, they know exactly that you're a killer. They know that you are an adulterer. Like, so she's getting death threats, obviously, now. And somebody sent this poem to Don Crowder's office. Candy Montgomery was a whore. She screwed around with Alan Gore. When <laughs> Betty Gore brought it up, Candy used an axe to cut her up. In Collin County, murder's okay if you go to church and pray. And don't worry, adultery's cool if you teach at Sunday school. Wow. Yeah. So basically she was getting notes and like pictures of her face scratched out and like little dolls with like nooses around her neck and like just – it was terrible. So they move, obviously. So the Montgomerys decide to move to a town outside of Atlanta, Georgia. Candy goes back to school and becomes a family counselor. What? Uh, yep. <laughs> I'm just giving you – this is like we're just wrapping up. So obviously the the town was wild. They wrote a book about it. They made a 1990 movie about it. This is still remembered by the old timers in the town, of course. It's what the town is known for. So I'm just going to go into what happened to all these people. Okay. So the Montgomery family all moves outside of Atlanta, Georgia. Candy, like I said, becomes a family counselor. <laughs> she now goes by her maiden name, Wheeler. And it appears that they stayed together for a while after the murder, but eventually her and Pat got divorced. And Pat is now remarried to another woman and lives in a nearby Georgia town, but not in the same town as Candy. And Candy, I don't know how her business is doing because I found her on health grades for like her, you know, counseling work. And one of the reviews was like, she killed a woman with an axe, 41 hits. And this was like on her health grades. Oh, review. No. Yeah. So I don't think, you know, I don't know what she deserves, but I don't think she's had a very easy go on it. I do hope that their children are doing well. I, I didn't know. look anything up because they're innocent and they don't deserve to be brought up in whatever my follow up is. If they haven't talked to, you know, journalists, I don't want to find innocent people, you know? Uh, hopefully those kids, Jenny and Ian, are doing well. And the Pomeroys and the Gores had a very, very hard time after the trial. I mean, they got no justice for Betty's death. Um, and Alan remarried less than three months after the acquittal. What? Yeah. And to make matters worse, the woman was apparently terrible to Elisa and Bethany. In a 20th anniversary article in the Dallas Morning News um, written by Doug Swanson – Elisa reported that Elaine, their stepmother, had punished both of them by withholding food, by making them take ice-cold showers with their feet in, like, ice cube bins, and had even forced Elisa, when she was 
only 10 years old to read Evidence of Love, the book that I have been quoting. What? That has all of the details of her father's affair and her mother's murder. Oh my yeah. God. So she's just the stepmother sadistic. Sadistic. I mean, she said that she even made her give her a report on every chapter. Oh my God. What is wrong with her? I don't know. That's like beyond terrible. And so it got to a point where the Pomeroy's, Betty's parents, noticed on a visit that little Bethany had tufts of her hair missing Oh, um, from her head. And Elisa was telling them some of the stuff that was going on. And so they were like, okay, F this. And thankfully, it sparked a custody battle that the Pomeroy's won. Great. So Betty's parents won custody and moved the girls to Kansas where they had a super happy upbringing. Both girls did really, really, really well in school. They were both salutatorians of their class, and they both earned scholarships to college. So as of 2000, um, Bethany was in college, and Elisa was a married mother with an infant. And they both said that they think their mom would have really been proud of them and that they had a great upbringing as soon as they went to their grandparents and that they wished that their mother had divorced their father and like moved back to Kansas so that they could still have her and have their grandparents. And so that's the only thing that really makes them sad. At the time of publication of that article in 2000, they had not seen their father for six years. Wow. And he had... Yeah, he hadn't been invited to Elisa's wedding. Um, So they were currently estranged. But recent reports, I I did some digging on the internet, and it it looks like now they're at least friends on Facebook. So I don't know if they've reconciled or if they're just like connected in that way. The Pomeroy's had trouble forgiving Candy, of course, um, but also Alan. I guess Bob had confronted Alan after the trial about his attitude towards Betty's death. And he said that Alan said, it didn't bother bother me very much. We weren't getting along anyway. Oh my God. Yeah. Not okay to talk about your murdered wife that way. Never. Especially not to her father. Wow. Something's not right So he there. ended up divorced from Elaine as well. And he is now currently living in Maine with his third wife, it looks like. So I don't know what his deal was. So yeah, uh, that was a pretty brutal story. So we're going to finish on fun Wikipedia facts. Um, So this one didn't have as many fun Wikipedia facts as Kenya did. But Barbara Hershey won a Golden Globe and an Emmy Award for her portrayal of Candy. And Elizabeth Moss from The Handmaid's Tale and... Mad Men, she is actually attached to play Candy in a new limited series that's coming out like next year or something. Very fitting. Very fitting. So it's going to be called Candy and it's literally all about her. Yeah. Did she she make money off of those rights? I don't know. No, you can't. The Son of Sam thing happened in the 70s and after that they said that – you can't profit off of your own crimes. Okay. So if they – like she can't get royalties from the books or the movies. But right even though she was acquitted? Oh, you know, I don't know. Maybe she can. She probably can if she was acquitted, right? Because you're essentially approving, you know, selling yourself. <gasps> yeah. Giving the rights oh my God. to a crime that you weren't convicted of. Huh. That's crazy. Oh, God. That is – I think she can make money off of it. Well, I guess like one of the guys in the jury too was a um, a former combat veteran. Uh-huh. And so he kind of like understood and kind of helped the other jurors understand that like in the heat of battle or when you're being attacked. And trauma as well. 
and trauma that you can do something that you like don't recall or don't remember. And I think maybe that did help sway some of the people to be like, oh, maybe she really couldn't help herself, you know? Yeah. I think the doctor probably helped so much too. Yeah, exactly. And that was risky too because I mean, this is conservative Texas and that was kind of a pretty out there woo-woo like hypnotism strategy, but it totally paid off. And then the last fact is that the director of the made-for-TV movie was Stephen Gyllenhaal, the father of Maggie and Jake. Crazy. Yeah. So that's that's it for your Wikipedia fun facts. Sorry there wasn't more. Nobody was drinking urine this week. I feel like we need a theme song for the fun facts. Yeah. Wikipedia fun facts. <laughs> not just me singing because I'm not a singer. So yeah. So that is – what do you think about that one? Oh, huh? Rough. I mean, I really liked the twist and turns a lot. Like I feel like that definitely was new. <laughs> yeah. And – brutal. And we've never had such a brutal crime. It's not even like people just getting shot. I was going to say, I mean, if she went and like found the axe herself and grabbed it and then just chopped her up 41 times, that that is how I like envisioned it at first. And so now hearing the full story, I like how you told it, how it unfolds with the trial. This one was really hard to figure out how to tell. Really? (laughs) Because I, yeah, I really wanted to have like maximum impact for everything that came out as people found out about it, you know? Yeah, well, you did a good job. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I really love finding all these stories. I hope you guys are listening or enjoying these stories. And like I said, please send us any incredible love triangle type murders because we would love to tell those stories more. And definitely check out the Instagram. Yeah, we're going to have lots of pictures of all of these people. Yep, so it's at lovemurderpod. Yep, and that's also um, our Twitter and our email is lovers at lovemurder.love. And we love you. So thank you, lovers. Yes, thank you for listening. So in closing, don't have an affair with somebody you met at church. Flip-flops are never a good idea. And remember, we're all just one bad relationship away from getting murdered. Bye-bye. Bye.